Well, good morning, gang. Good to be back here with you today to look at uh, the gospel according to Job, maybe. Uh, I have been, oh my goodness, quarantined for the last week of my life uh, because my, <laughs> my kids decided to deliver me a gift last Tuesday. They delivered the gift of double pink eyes to me. Uh, I still have the evidence that that actually happened, uh, but I do not have the infection anymore. I'm finally better, praise the Lord. But it was a week of me being quarantined basically in my house. I did, hey, I got a lot of reading done, a lot. I got a lot of reading. I, I, I did a lot of preparation for uh, Dan Price and I's uh, new series in the Book of Romans for 30 minutes in the New Testament. So, um, you know, so there's a purpose for all of it. But uh, good to be back here with you today as we look into uh, Job. Now, just to recap for you, last week we saw really the introduction with Job and his wife losing nearly everything. Uh, all their property, their wealth, their health, their children. Uh, though we didn't uh, quite answer the question why suffering happens, I mean, because we, we really can't exactly, uh, we did discuss some of the reasons why it doesn't happen. We said it's not because God is punishing the believer, nor is it because God loses control. And finally, that it wasn't because he doesn't love us. Jesus Christ proves that. Uh, this week, by just looking at a few verses, we're going to discuss what it looks like to comfort or minister to those who do suffer in our midst. And we're going to do that by looking at Job's friends, the famous friends that we always knock for doing it the wrong way, initially, initially, for like three verses out of 40 chapters, do it the right way. Good morning, Pauline. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Jean. Good morning, Bonnie. There's a few other people there I can't quite see right now. Um, <clears throat> and so we read Job chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, the three verses in which Job's foolish friends actually do something right. And we're going to sort of glean from that some ways of ministering to the suffering ourselves. So it reads like this. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. Don't worry, I'm not going to quiz you on those names later. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. End of reading. Well, I'm afraid there is nowhere where we are more prone to foot and mouth disease than when we are trying to be a friend to those who suffer. And that will certainly be the case with Job's friends throughout the rest of this book. I mean, they're just, they really fail hard. But initially, they're really good. And so what can we learn from them? Uh, how... What does it look like to minister to a friend who's suffering? Well, first, it begins by simply coming to them. Uh, that's what we read Job's friends did. Now, quote, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They made an appointment together. 
to come show him sympathy and comfort him. That's what the text says. Now, that almost seems like a duh statement, right? I mean, hey, you got to go to people that are suffering. But the fact is, our tendency a lot of the time is to do just the opposite. And the reason why is because it's uncomfortable and difficult and we're not sure what to say. And so because it makes us uncomfortable, we may just opt to kind of stay away from it all, to, to distance ourselves from those who are suffering. Now, of course, we don't say that. I mean, we wouldn't say that to someone, I don't think. But our way of staying away can often be much more subtle. We may say something like, uh, well, you know, call me if you need anything. Or, um, I'm here if you need me. Now, of course, those aren't bad statements in and of themselves. They're, they're fine. Uh, to make yourself available to someone at all um, is good. But um, these statements can often be our way of sort of placing the burden on the sufferer to call us, to ask us for help rather than entering in. And it doesn't mean, again, that's not bad. It's just, it's a subtle way that we can sort of justify our own distance from a person who's going through a hard time. I'm sure if you're like most people, you've felt the pressure to say just the right words. Here's a little secret. There aren't any. <laughs> uh, when somebody's really suffering, you're not going to be able to say just the right words at the exact moment. Even if you're delivering great gospel words, it may not be the right words at the moment. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit later. But rather, first, we come to where people are at. So Brene Brown, a writer and fan favorite TED Talk speaker, uh, in a talk on empathy, nailed it when she said, empathy is when someone's in a deep hole and they shout from the bottom, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we climb down to where they're at and say, hey, you're not alone. That's how it starts. Hey, you're not alone. Also, these friends, as they minister to the sufferer, weep with the sufferer. Joe's friends, as they saw him from a distance, they didn't recognize him. It says they raised their voices and wept and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. To sprinkle dust in your head back then was a way of sort of identifying with the suffering of your friend. It was a way of saying you're grieving with them. And uh, there's, I don't know if there's anything more important when you're suffering than to know that other people are weeping with you that you're not alone in it. I remember some years ago, uh, a friend of mine whose parents were killed on the mission field, um, he was a, a young adult, shared uh, a time, I asked him after some time removed from his parents' death, uh, if there was anything that particularly helped him as he grieved the loss of his parents. And, uh, and he said, you know, Eric, the most moving, comforting, encounter I had with someone was my parents' neighbor back in the States. Uh, he was a farmer and an old family friend, um, and I was sitting on the floor with my back against the bottom of the couch, just absolutely stunned. And he came and sat on the couch above me and didn't say a word. Then he just put his hand on my shoulder and sobbed. My friend said, I don't know exactly why, but I was never more comforted than at that moment. I had a hundred uh, and a thousand people giving condolences, but it was the one man who just put his hand on my shoulder and wept with me that brought me tremendous comfort in my time 
of grief and loss. Don't underestimate the importance of just coming and weeping with the sufferer. Uh, thirdly, Job's friends stay with him. We're told in verse 13 that they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. Oh, how important it is to actually stay with the person who is suffering, just to stay with them, near them in their time of need. Our tendency, especially in the West, is to want to get in and out of there as quickly as possible. And it's probably, again, because we feel uncomfortable with it. We're not quite sure how to deal with it. But man, I'll tell you, there's something really, really important about just sticking around with somebody. I mean, you know, initially when you talk to somebody who's lost a loved one, initially there's so much planning to do for a funeral. There's so much, uh, there's so many people around them initially that, that they actually don't even have time to, to grieve initially. I mean, it really hasn't happened because there's so many things to do. But the hardest time is like a week after the memorial service for people when everyone's gone and everyone's kind of back to normal and now they've got to face a new normal. It is incredibly significant if you're that person that comes alongside of them uh, a week later and says, I just want to remind you, I'm still here. I'm, you're not alone. You're not going to be alone. I'm not going to let you be alone. I'm going to still be here with you. Okay? It's so, so significant to be that kind of person. I remember in a prior congregation I was serving a a young woman with three kids had lost her husband suddenly to a, a, a real tragic heart attack. He's way, way too young. And uh, here she is now, a single mother, three kids. What's she going to do? And I remember walking into her home, oh, four days or so after the uh, the death of her husband. And, and the home was just filled to the brim with people, filled to the brim with people everywhere. I mean, people cleaning and people cooking and people swimming in the back and people watching TV. And I, I was sort of, I mean, I expected this environment to be doom and gloom. And then I, as I walked in, I saw people hanging out and, and laughing and being friendly with each other. And it dawned on me, these were just people staying with her, staying with the family their time of need. So, so important just to stay, <clears throat> just to be there. Uh, and then the, the fourth thing we see that Job's friends initially did right is they shut their mouth. And man, do they quickly lose this ability because the rest of the book is basically them opening their dumb trap and uh, saying all sorts of stupid stuff. Uh, but initially it says, no one spoke a word to him for they saw that his suffering was very great. Oh, if only... They would have kept up that practice. They could have been so much more helpful to him. As a matter of fact, they, they talk so much, so much nonsense about God and about Job, that at the end of the book, Job actually has to make a sacrifice for them so God won't take him out for speaking all sorts of nonsense about him. That's how bad their advice is. <laughs> uh, it's an interesting thing. Uh, you know, I, was, I have a friend... Uh, who was an intern for me at my church in the city from Finland. And he pointed out to me that one of the hallmarks of Americans in his mind is a deep discomfort with quiet and silence. And I think he's generally right about that. It is terribly uncomfortable for me too. I was a, a part-time hospice chaplain for a while, ministering specifically to dying people who often could no longer speak. 
And it was the most challenging thing I had ever done in my life as a pastor to learn how to sit there and somehow comfort a person without speaking. But oh, how significant it is to be able to sit there without speaking. The reason you speak most of the time is for your own sake. Most of the time, it's to make yourself feel more comfortable. And so, but if we can just be present and not have to fill the air with words, initially, there is a time for speaking, but initially just to sit, wow, it, it can be very powerful. All right, so in the end, all this sounds basically like pretty simple advice. I mean, you know, when we're suffering, we just need friends to come to us, weep with us, stay with us, and be quiet with us. Done and done. And yet I can think of numerous times that I haven't done any of this. And the fact is, I have been a worse friend to the suffering than I wish I would have. I've had good intentions and often failed. And the fact is, none of us are going to be this perfect friend to those who we're going to make mistakes. And, and if we... Uh, if if we uh, refuse to go into a situation without, um, you know, uh, complete and utter confidence that we're always going to do it right, well, then we're never going to do anything. We'll be paralyzed. No, we, we have to go in. But when we suffer, we also have to realize that ultimately what's most important is the ultimately better and truer friend to those who suffer, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the true and better friend that suffers truly need because we do need someone to come to us and uh, and we hear in the the letter to the philippians that that's exactly what jesus does he takes the initiative and comes down into the mess of our world he was though he was in the form of god did not count equality with god a thing to be grasped but empties himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross and yet, when he comes, he does not just sort of wave a wand and fix our suffering. He doesn't do that today, and he didn't do that in his ministry. But he sees us, and he loves us. He weeps with us. I'm sure many of you know the story of Lazarus, one of my favorite stories, not necessarily because he raises Lazarus from the dead, as awesome as that is, but more importantly, because he weeps with those who weep. That is such a powerful, profound moment for me. As a matter of fact, in Greek, the way that Jesus' expression of emotion um, is written down is that he was shaking with anger over what he had seen because Jesus hates death and he hates destruction and he hates seeing his people suffer. And Jesus is the one who stands and weeps with you at all times in your suffering. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't stand far away from it or far removed from it. He is the friend that doesn't merely come to us and merely weep with us, but he stays with us. Remember, Jesus says he'll never leave you nor forsake you. The fact is, I will. I will leave you. And th there's a decent chance that I may even forsake you because I'm an imperfect being, but you have a friend, O sinner, that will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is faithful, faithful to the end. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus, the Apostle Paul says. And yes, we need a friend who knows when and where to speak perfectly, because we don't. But Jesus' word always is the right word at any given time. He always knows when to speak it and when to bring someone into our life to bring that word to us, to preach the words of forgiveness, to preach the words of assurance, to preach the words of hope when we need it. 
So he, our true friend, constantly and continuously comes to us, forgiving our sins and invites us with these comforting words, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So no matter what kind of suffering you've gone through, my friends, or maybe are going through right now, or surely will go through in your life, you can be absolutely confident that the theologian Helmut Thielicke was right when he said, at the bottom of every abyss, Jesus stands with me. Amen. All right, gang. I hope you have a great Tuesday. Hope you have a great rest of the week. God bless you. We'll see you then.